This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast, and I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer. Wait a second. You're not Mark Oppenheimer. I am. Oh, my God. Guys, we are joined this week by the other Mark Oppenheimer. This is freaky. <laughs> Live. This is literally like looking at that Spider-Man meme. It's like you're pointing at each other. You're kind of dressed in similar tones. So for those people you who might You both have be, great hair. I mean, this is really weird. For those people who might be newbies to the show, we have interviewed before the South African Mark Oppenheimer, the one who got mark.oppenheimer at gmail.com. And what are you doing in New York? I'm out here visiting a whole bunch of friends on my podcast um, from Brain of Vats. So there's all these great philosophers that live in this beautiful city. And then I'm flying off to Memphis to speak at a conference. We are so honored. This See, he does, he does philosophers in conferences. Your we, glasses we, are even similar. We tell Holocaust jokes. <laughs> Wouldn't it be interesting if the sort of <laughs> genetic link between all people named Mark Oppenheimer was full head of hair? And glasses. And glasses. And bad eyes, right. Myopia. Oh my God, this is amazing. Myopia is amazing. and follicles. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, you and I are going to cut some stuff later. It's going to be great. But, you know, in the meantime, just absorb our unorthodox vibes. Um, what the other Mark Oppenheimer was about to tell you is that he's joined as ever by my co-host, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And the editor-at-large, Leah Leibowitz. I'm the other Leah Leibowitz. <laughs> We've talked about this. There is, it's a woman. There's another Leah Leibowitz and it's a there she, is right? not another Leah Leibowitz. There are other Liels. Other Liels, but, right. But not a Leibowitz among them. That is so interesting. I'm sure we've talked about this. Catch me up. Is there another Stephanie Butnick? No, of course not. There are some other Butnicks, um, but I'm... There's a Howie. Well, yeah, yeah I'm related to them. Yeah, um, yeah no. Uh, today on our show, the Jew of the Week is Ruth Markell, whose son was tragically murdered in 2014. She's written a book about that loss and about her work advocating for grandparent visitation rights. A truly great interview. Our Gentile of the Week is comedian Zarna Garg, who talked with us about how being an Indian immigrant and a mom influences her work and about how Indians are the new Jews, and sometimes are Jews. Yep. And sometimes are Hindus. And we'll find out how she is a good Jew. And sometimes old Jews. And, so, and sometimes that too. Mark, you came in hot with some banter. I have, You're like, you're uh, buzzing. It's true. I came in, I said, guys, I have to share. I have to share. So two things. First of all, I had my scholar-in-residence weekend at the home shul of our colleague and general manager, Tanya Singer, Sherry Tikva in Scarsdale, New York. What an amazing weekend. Great people. Great rabbi, Rabbi Adam, great cantor, great human beings, a lot of great events. I had some time to kill Saturday afternoon. I went to Bronx River Books, which is a pro-unorthodox bookstore. They stock the newest <laughs> Jewish encyclopedia. And they haven't banned it yet. They've not banned it yet. And while there, while there, I was recognized by Linda Lebo, who was there with her grandchildren. And she saw me and said, you're from unorthodox and you knew it's Jewish. And she bought two copies of it, one for her grandchildren and their parents. I have one, so many questions. One for her and her husband. So there I made the store hand-selling books for them. That's you know. amazing. Yeah, Did she really know you were there for the weekend? Was it like she knew that it was a possibility that Mark was like in the water somewhere? The fan, the Scarsdale fan group was buzzing or, all week. Were you literally out of context recognized? Here's the great thing. Although my poster was up in the window because Tanya Singer blanketed, <laughs> the, like there were stop signs covered up with our poster in Scarsdale. <laughs> She did not know that. She had seen me on a Zoom for an event I did at Temple Israel in Westport. So you had been on the circuit <laughs> like, before. That voice, that hair, it must be. Fairfield County was on high alert. So You know how they're like Amber Alerts for like kidnapped children? <laughs> what's what's the alert for a Jewish podcast? It's a corduroy alert. <laughs> corduroy alert was issued. The, the area's blanketed in corduroy. <laughs> like Christo, who drapes yeah, in yeah. fabric, and the whole town is draped Your in corduroy. Your phone buzz is like, oh no, there's, oh, no. Uh, there's a Jewish podcaster uh, in my neighborhood. Uh-oh. Uh, you could hear the, the swish of the corduroy pants against yes. each other. So that was amazing. Love doing Scholar in Residence. Love doing uh, Sherry Tikva. Then yesterday, I'm back in New Haven. I'm walking around town. And this is just, I, I just want to know what you make of this story. 
I'm sort of rushing to my car. I've got to go get in my car to pick up David at preschool. And who comes and but, a, but, but Linda Lebo, <laughs> who has followed me. <laughs> she's worked her way up. She's working up north on the Merritt. She's like slowly going to be in Springfield stalking my parents. No, what happens is this woman yells out to me and says, hey, how are you? And I thought she was doing that thing where sometimes you see another human being on a street and you're like, hey. And you greet them. You just greet them. You're like, hey, you're given that sort of tight- I've heard this has happened and like this used to happen <laughs> right. in mm-hmm. America. That, that tight-lipped smile like, hey. So I said, hey, what's up? And she's like, wait, wait, come here, talk to me. So I sort of get closer now. This is in New Haven where I've held 25 different jobs over 25 years. I, I know a lot of people, not a, a lot of people know me. So I trust that when I'm actually locked into conversation with her, it will become clear who she is. She's standing with someone else, by the way. And, and I get closer and I don't recognize her. And she says to me, it's been so long. Like since we were both working for Yale 15 years ago, remember I was at the drama school. So then I'm thinking, okay, this is plausible. Like she was doing something at drama school. I was doing something with journalism. We collaborated on some event. And I was like, oh my God, it's been so long. She's like, Melissa, remember I'm Melissa. And I was like, oh, Melissa, of course. I'm totally making this up. So far, this is just a story that happens to all of us, right? Then she turns to her friend and says to her friend, this guy is the most amazing talent ever. I'm thinking, what did I do that makes her think of the talent? I was like, oh, well, He's thanks. like, he was in Harry Potter. <laughs> he was on Broadway and Echoes. He's great. You're seeing where this is going, right? <laughs> so I was like, that's so kind of you. What have you been up to? She said, well, I left Yale. I'm now working for the city, doing arts management, blah, blah, blah. She's like, what about you? I said, I'm working on some books. She's like, that's great. Then she turns to her friend and she says, pointing at me, she says, Charles is the most gifted photographer I've ever worked with. <laughs> Now, by this point, we're literally, I condensed it, but we're five or seven minutes in. Like, we, she has been, we've been talking to each other as if we know each other. And she's like, Charles, the most amazing photographer. The shots he would take were so crisp, so clean. He really captured the vividness. And now he has books coming out. He has coffee table books that are out. He's really something. And she turns to me and she's like, Charles, how do you do it? Now, at this point. In this moment, there's a lot. Yeah, do? what do you do? What do you do? Oh, you, 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 you fake it. 100%. <laughs> You're talking about that the, lens oh, for size, sure. the aperture. <laughs> The lighting. What yeah, else? You say something like, it's all about the light. <laughs> Chase the light. Right. So when I was telling this to my kids last night, kids being sort of programmed to, if not be honest, at least believe in honesty. Yes, right. yes. Say, well, clearly. Programmed I, by you. Right. That, <laughs> that is they Charles. say, they all look at me and say, well, Dak, you, you told her the truth, right? I was like, and Sid looks at me. She's like, no, he didn't. You can't tell them the truth at that point. You're seven or eight minutes in. So no, I kept faking it. Five more minutes. I was like, oh, well, you're too kind. I just kept saying, you're too kind. It's re- like, honestly, <laughs> that's so nice of you. I'm not as great. And I turned to the other woman. I'm not as great as she thinks I am, but that's so sweet of her. So then I finally sort of wind it down. I was like, well, I really got to go pick up my son. And she's like, oh, you didn't even have a son when I knew you. <laughs> True. So, and I was like, good, see you later. And she's like, Charles, God bless you. Like, I'm so excited for your success. And I was like, bye, Melissa. So then I get home and I'm, of course, I'm racked with this sense. Like, did I, did I do something wrong? I feel somehow icky that I should have, I Google around, I go, Charles. Charles, New Haven. New Haven photographer. I believe she thinks I was T. Charles Erickson, who for many years was the house photographer for the Yale School of Drama and the Long Wharf Theater for like all of American theater. It turns out he's one of the great theater photographers. He shows up for um, dress rehearsal and takes the, the publicity I'm stills. looking, yes, I'm learning a lot about him and right now. What does it look like? It, well, you can't find what he looks like because if you Google T. Charles Erickson photographer, his pictures. it's just credits on every photograph from the history of American theater, like Fences, Sweeney Todd, photo credit T. Charles Erickson. You can't find him. Okay. What I did find is he graduated from college in 1979. <laughs> <laughs> He's 18 years older than me. So apparently I- Charles, you really look great. Anyway, I just want to put out there in the universe that if anyone of the J. Crew knows T. Charles Erickson, I'm such a dead ringer for him that I'm mistaken for him on the streets of the Have. Okay, I have a photo of him around 1993 
where he kind of looks Plausible. like you now. Show me. He's holding a cat, though. Pl- um, <laughs> Plausible. He has a, an amazing head of hair, a pair of like. Oh my lord, he looks, he looks exactly like, you. like Mark. <laughs> Uh, should I like Charles. this? Should I like this photo? Why don't you like that photo on Instagram? <laughs> anyway, host looks I mean, amazing. it's a really great thing that he's still with us because imagine, you yeah. know, Melissa <laughs> goes home and Googles T. Charles, and T. Charles died six years ago well, in a scuba diving accident, and she's like, "But, but I met, but him I met him on today. the street. Well, and I, his son. Here's what I do fear happened, and I feel bad about this: is she went home and emailed him and said it was so great bumping into you on the street today, and he writes back, "What the fuck are you talking?" He's about? like, "I live in London now." <laughs> She feels like I, but like somehow this imposture. And then, and then she sees you again and be like, hey, this you asshole. Like, this is like an ethicist thing. <laughs> it is. It kind of is. It's so like that Carby was, enthusiasm thing. Anyway, is what what's, is. How's by you, Leah Leibowitz? So I'm keeping it with a the theater theme. Uh, I had an amazing theater related experience. And if you know me, you, and you know, don't like is, theater. No, no, so no what not was only this? do I not like hate theater, theater, I actively hate theater because, as my friend says, it's being too close to actors and you don't really <laughs> want to be close to actors because it's gross. Uh, and if there's one thing I hate more than theater, it's musical theater, which is really, as far as I'm concerned, the, the nadir of, of the genre. But Lily was one of the stars of her middle school production of The Little Mermaid. And I I found my genre. I mean, this is it. Middle school theater. musicals. Because get me on this one. First of all, the kids are adorable. So they haven't yet developed all the gross affectations of actors, which actors called their craft. You know, this kind of like eye rolling and like, Limb swaying yeah. that I can't stand. I love Number your one. unbelievably reductionist view of theater. Oh, no, 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 no. It is, it's, it's like, they're all just frauds. It's just a notch I above mean, Belgians, as far as T. I'm Charles concerned. Charles Erickson like, would not be pleased. <laughs> not be pleased yeah. at all. So that's number one. Number two, it's for kids. So they never pick like, the important morally serious play about the plight of the albinos in Albania. It's always like, <laughs> it's Disney, dude. And then the best part, it's freaking 40 minutes long. Like, you sit down. It's like, you're out. Was she Ariel? Was she Sebastian the Crab? She was was a variety of things. She was, uh, I believe, Cordelia the... She was a bunch of really great... fish, the crab, uh, yeah. She, you know, they rocked it. The kids were amazing. She was amazing. Uh, Did I mention it was 40 minutes? It was 40 minutes. And it was genuinely the most amused and elevated. I was like texting with some of the other dads. And like, they're like, we're crying right now. Like, guys who can't stand this. Jewish like, middle school musical under the theater. Sea. Yeah. <laughs> she's under, she's the, under sea. the sea. Under the so sea. I'm, I'm, the I'm, seaweed is, is always it. greener. I will go to whatever middle school performance you invite Friends, me to. Friends, send your comp tickets to your <laughs> daughter's middle pay. school production. And maybe T. Charles will be there <laughs> T. To Charles actually will be shooting it. Um, I have nothing that exciting, but... You know, in my in my Jewish journey for me and Edith, mm-hmm. um, Passover is coming. Passover mm-hmm. is like two weeks away, which I feel like people need to know and start preparing for. But anyway. By the way, I love how you put it like, it sounds like so Game of Thrones. It, Passover, Passover is coming. Passover yeah. is coming. I, it's the red, it's the red Seder. Right. So Passover is coming and Edith is also obsessed with Sesame Street, specifically Elmo, but anything Sesame Street, like I like to sort of incorporate. I like to purchase. Um, Have you gotten the PJ Library, Rehov, Simsum, Sesame Street in Israel books yet? Um, Not really. They're good ones. I This is my secret. I'm not signed up for PJ Library. Not, not, I just assumed the, someone was going to sign up. Not yeah. Sesame Fauda? Sesame Fauda, no. <laughs> successful crossover of all time. <laughs> Big Bird right. is back. Elmo dresses in blue, pretends to be Grover. <laughs> Goes into the village and... Okay, Sesame so listen, Stiesel. I, I added the most amazing... That would be book. amazing. Sesame, Sesame Stiesel. <laughs> oh my God, that is amazing. Shulam Aleichem. <laughs> it's me. Was machst du, Grover? The Count. I'm a rabbi here. Uh, I have questions about the count that we will get to on a later episode. But anyway, this I recently learned that Grover is Jewish. And I learned that because I have a book. I'm holding a book in my hand. 
It's called It's Passover, Grover. It is an official licensed Sesame Street book. Pass Grover. Where Grover goes to Passover. Grover has Passover. He, he look at this. He's Whoa. He loves matzah. Grover's cousins, Shira and Josh, come over. <laughs> <laughs> they look like Jewish Muppets. Um, Oscar yeah. Grouch is wearing Gr- a, Hold on, can, a can trash I see Shira can. and Josh? Shira and Josh, it's almost offensive. Are, are, are the noses just a tad bit bigger? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> the noses are just nope. as big as Elmo's, but it looks wrong. Uh, Josh is wearing a yarmulke and glasses. Josh look, is wearing Mark Oppenheimer glasses. Uh-huh. Uh, they you tell the Passover. <laughs> Josh, Josh is wearing his lactose intolerance on his sleeve. And I, I was showing Edith because she loves Elmo. And I... Elmo's literally eating Haroset on this page. It says, <laughs> Elmo loves apples and nuts, said Elmo, reaching for a bowl. That's called Haroset, Elmo, said Josh. <laughs> uh, Elmo is a Latter-day Saint! Anyway, then they look for the Afi Coleman, and I was just like, okay, is there a world where Grover is Jewish? So I Google it. Um, I see a tweet from 2017. Someone says, holy shit, Grover is Jewish? Is this canon? Um, and this was from a, a Grover Hanukkah book. And mm-hmm. I kind of like... I now need to do the thing that I do for everything mm-hmm. that we do for everything. Jewish. But, but in the Sesame Street universe. And I feel but like... For puppets. I, for puppets. Right. Yeah. Well, and there then, was, someone, by the way, someone wrote back, all puppet, all Muppets are Jewish or at least part Jewish. There's a whole thing we're going to get into. Oh, I want to hear what everyone has to say. Harry, Kasha in their beards, you know. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting. All so like Jewish and Goyish. Jewish or Goyish. For Pup- Muppets. Muppets. Jewish. So, I, I'm going to say all Muppets are Jewish. Just, and I, wait, wait, just because why? And you know what? Wait, can I can I double down? All Disney characters, Goyesh. Yes, I agree with that. A thousand yes, percent, yes, yes. I think yes. I think, right. Why yes. are all Muppets so, Jewish? Except when they do that at Liel's kids' Jewish school. <laughs> right. Except except mermaids who are at, those are us uh, at Jewish day school. Go, they go are, explaining. Disney they are Jewish. To the Goyesh. That's right. Uh, why uh, Harry, which is a very important part of it, which That's I'm very offensive. proud of. Yeah. Loud. Uh, constantly arguing with each other. Incredibly creative. Cooperatively deliver like cooperatively overlapping. overlapping. Yeah. Uh, always delivering these like kind of like magical rules out of nowhere that somehow work and and you know invent a new reality. Sorry, I'm just googling. Um, is the count Jewish? Because I have a lot of thoughts. Oh, about I the think count. there's been talk about the anti-Semitism. He's Jew or not of Jew? The, the count. No, the count is the great grandson of a Hasidic master. <laughs> From Hungary. <laughs> who did Gamatria, who was very involved, exactly, who was very involved that's, in that's that. That's how he knows. That's how he knows. 613. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, again, how could the count not be Jewish? It's like his entire religion focused and obsessed with counting shit. Like, of course, we count the Omer. Like, this literally a count-themed holiday built into this thing. Please write in if you've thought about this. I do. The thing that worries me is, though, I've never done that. Like, I don't want to—I don't want to— map this onto Edith's innocent world where like it doesn't matter if like, right. like I'm I'm now doing that thing that we do the Jewish chauvinism no, 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 begins but, but yes, this character yes, you on. love you not, know this character you love is Jewish not only should you do it but you should also use this as a tool to teach you Judaism but like, look in Sesame Street there is Hasidim and Misnagdim <laughs> so here's the thing Big Bird clearly a Litvak yeah, I mean clearly. Not, not one of ours uh, Oscar the Grouch clearly a Litvak friends, like friends. no joy this is no clearly fun. the topic of the week. 914-570-4869 or write to us unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Is there an arrow in Sesame Street? Is what I want to know. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J News of the Jews. Uh-huh. News of the Jews. Uh, Liel Leibowitz, as both our food correspondent, our Kashras correspondent, and our European correspondent, <laughs> I think this story is all you. All of my biases come that's together. Right. Also, it was so, written in Hebrew, so he was the only one who could read it. Right. So look, um, 
I like scientists uh, and I like Polish people, but Polish scientists may be my favorite because while all the other scientists were wasting their time with things like, oh, is the world going to end or, or cold oh, fusion, cold fusion, or how do I have like alternative sources of energy or dumb shit like this? Polish scientists really address themselves to the one question that truly matters that every yeshiva boycher has discussed obsessively, but lacking the scientific tools, which is which meat is tastier, kosher or non-kosher? Now, before I reveal the results of hashtag science, what, what do you think? I just want to say that calling it non-kosher meat is the most hilarious. It's just meat. Right. But we're like, you're not kosher. That's right. It's the world there's kosher is... meat and then there's the other. Yeah, there are Jews and then there are non-Jews? It's, it's the goyim of it is. meat. It's this Jewish hubris. Non-Jews? Jubris. I love it. Jubris. Which is not, yes. But did it's, you just coin that? I did, but now I feel like it sounds like when the thing you do on the eighth day, a jubris. A ju- it is, but it's, sounds horrible it's like in that trivalent. Way. It's got yeah, 20 jubris. meanings. Although, jubris. by the way, if you have a lot of jubris, then you do not do the jubris. The jubris. See, yeah. see what I did there? I went deep. Why? Why like if you're skipping it? the Because the you're ritual, like, hey, God. We're better than oh, the bris. Oh, yeah. wow. It takes a lot of jubris to not have a jubris. <laughs> yeah. This is from the creator of the brisket. Yeah, and I was going to say, the next thing is, where's the brisket? I made, I did make a brisket for I believe for I own the world's so. only brisket. We'll talk Brisk about it. Yeah, it was a brisket. It a was brisk a first kit, aid kit. Yes, just known as I, a scalpel. <laughs> but it was a first aid kit that I repurposed and put a picture of brisket on it and I wrote brisket and put a bunch of funny things in. But I did not know Liel and his wife Lisa well enough to have done that. We, we it was it was like early it. on. It was early on. Some, some years ago. But I still. thought it was funny, and now I'm like, oh, that's a very oh, strange thing. Oh, this is thing. when his son was born? Yeah, yeah, yeah this yeah, was yeah. years ago. This is for the bris. For the bris. So. Uh, okay, so you, Stephanie, say, who, who won in this epic battle of the flesh? Of the, of the jubris? Yeah. Uh, I gotta say not, I mean, for the sake of argument, non-kosher meat. Mark Oppenheimer. I would guess that, too. I mean, I'm not a meat eater, but I used to be. I, I was no expert of this, but certainly when the crowd speaks on this, it's always that kosher meat doesn't quite measure up, that it's the non-kosher meat that tastes best. So here's the thing. Having spent a lifetime of eating treif before becoming kosher, I would have said exactly the same thing. I would have said chicken, no doubt. All poultry is much better kosher because built-in brining, because of the salting. But science has come out on the side of Hashem. Researchers, I'm, I'm reading now from the piece, researchers in Poland which has become a meat powerhouse, a meat powerhouse. In, recent, in recent years. And by Thank recent years, they, they mean the last 3,000 years. Published two new studies, two, not one, but two studies in which we compared the properties of kosher and non-kosher beef with the aim of deciding the age-old issue that preoccupies <laughs> Jewish carnivores around the world. I need to share the methodology here. This is not to be taken lightly. The researchers took into account several indicators from chewiness and juiciness <laughs> to color and chemical properties. The researchers examined 40 cows and 40 bulls, half of which were slaughtered without kosher supervision and half according to kosher rules, which include shedding the blood before, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And friends, by the way, the study was published in the journal Foods, <laughs> which is the only scientific journal that I, I, I hold by. And the researchers, having analyzed the chemical composition of the kosher meat, water content, protein, minerals, fat, collagen, taste, chewiness, claim that the butchering process triggers a chain reaction that increases the acidity of the meat, which affect the color, taste, and tenderness because the kosher process does not allow the cattle to be stunned or rendered unconscious before slaughter. The meat 
of the stressed animal tends to be more acidic. The stress during the process leads to a decrease in all kinds of chemical levels in the muscle, which results in dark and dry meat. Also, cows tend to have a calmer temperament than bulls, and relative to them, they suffer less stress in the process. In other words, we could go in and in and in and in to the details, but science has spoken. Kosher meat is the tastier meat. And for the price, it better be. Can we talk about this 40 cows and 40 bulls? Is this a story from the Bible? Like, what am I reading here? Also, accidentally, they brought about the Mashiach. And now the temple is going to be rebuilt because we just have no Because one of them was only red. So while I don't understand the specific of the science at all, being extremely ignorant. You endorse it. When it comes to things. I completely endorse uh, the Polish scientists who found that kosher meat is indeed the more delicious meat. Ruth Markell is our Jew of the week. Her son, Dan Markell, was an attorney and a law professor in Florida who was murdered in 2014. You may have heard about her case on the popular true crime podcast, Over My Dead Body, which is really quite terrific. I've listened to every second of it. The first season of the show told the story of Dan Markell and Wendy Adelson's marriage, their acrimonious divorce and custody battle, and Markell's subsequent murder. Evidence ultimately emerged that allegedly linked Wendy's family to the convicted hitmen. Dan's mother, Ruth Markell, became deeply involved with the case and as an advocate for grandparent visitation rights, which she details in her book, The Unveiling, A Mother's Reflection on Murder, Grief, and Trial Life. We had the great privilege of talking with Ruth Markell. Ruth Markell, welcome to Unorthodox. I am so excited to be here. I have to say that um, I had friends who went to law school with your son, Dan, and I had heard talk of him even before this tragedy happened, and people would talk about what a great guy he was and, and what a bright guy he was and what it meant. So it was shocking to me when I, when I put two and two together and realized that this was the Dan Markell who might, who might heard about. But, but most people in our audience, of course, haven't heard about him. So can you just tell everyone you know, who, who your son was and what happened? Sure, I'd love to tell you. So Dan Markell became known as the slain professor in Florida. Dan, unfortunately, was shot on July 18th in 2014, and he died on July 19th in 2014. This is a murder. This is even a Jewish murder. He ended up more observant than the family he came from. What was his Jewish life and identity like, and, and, and how was it formed? And we had a strong Jewish identity. We were a traditional Jewish family. Truthfully, not observant, uh, but he went to a school. It wasn't orthodox in any way, but it was certainly very respectful. So he had that real leaning in and he liked it. And the truth is this school provided the knowledge, right? So he, you know, some people have the knowledge, they don't have the feeling, but he had both. And I think that was what made him so much really interested in, in Judaism. And no matter where he went, he sought out the Jewish experience, either through Chabad, Hillel, or just joining some synagogues, you know, where they had, you know, let's call it conservadox orientations to it. I want to get into his his marriage a little bit, which you're so candid about in the book. And I was curious, obviously, he had this very bitter divorce and there were custody issues. And one of the things you talk so much about is the tension over how to raise the children Jewishly. And he ended up meeting on J-Date, right? Isn't that how he and Wendy met? That is correct. 
And yet he ended up in this marriage where they had very different ideas about how to raise the children Jewishly as you saw it. And I was curious, is that something he knew from the start or is that a tension that revealed itself once they had a child? No, actually, there was a lot of agreement between Dan and Wendy in terms of when they first met. Danny was very much into going to all these Shabbatons, uh, running around to any place that was a Friday night service. And it was pretty much Dan running to synagogue on Saturday mornings and observing more the holidays, like let's say he would not work initially on Sukkot and the things of that nature. But it was it was fairly easy. And they did decide, now this was the whole point, they decided they would bring up the children kosher. This is where the conflict starts a little bit later. So when Wendy and Dan had daycare experiences, Wendy also initially brought, let's say, uh, tofu hot dogs, falafel, different things. It was Donna when she was there on long visits. Your daughter-in-law's mother. Yeah. Right. Correct. And she told the school straightforward, just give the kids the regular hot dogs. So we start to see this disruption. And then in addition to that, they were visiting very frequently. And let's say the kids finished a soccer practice. They took them to McDonald's for cheeseburgers. This was already a real violation because now the kids, whenever they finish soccer, they wanted to get cheeseburgers. And Danny caught on. So that was really an issue. By that time, you know, the children were already involved in the disruption. This story has these two unique horrors, one of just the the brutality of, of the murder itself and then to this, this really personal side of how it happened, your son's ex-brother-in-law is currently on trial for allegedly being the mastermind behind this, this murder for hire. And there are a few people in prison for their role in carrying this out. I mean, how do you deal with this? That's the hard part. That, that's if you want to look at it, not in anger, but as in disgust. I, I guess maybe it depends what term or what description you use. My harshest feeling is really disgust. I want to back up a little bit because I think it's it's important just for me to explain to you the grief process before we get to the crime. And I think that it's very important because we don't talk about grief enough. The founder of MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driver, her name is Carolyn Leitner, and her interpretation of grief goes, grief comes in three stages, the beginning, the middle, and the rest of your life. And this is really important to understand the depth and the feeling that none of this is going away. And and that's really a strong message that I want to get to the audience. And one of the reasons I wrote the book. So the unveiling, the title of the book relates to, as many of us know, the Jewish custom of actually, you know, having a tombstone placed on the gravesite. And when the tombstone is placed on the gravesite, there's an inscription on the tombstone. But the actual service or ceremony or ritual is to lift the curtain and see what's written there when the whole community is gathered around for the service. So the book has two parts to it. One is to really describe my grief journey starts at the unveiling. Okay, and this is a really important point, the depth of the grief, the real stuff. And the second is really what you just started to talk about, which is to lift the curtain, lift the fabric and show the world what is it like to have a victim experience? What is it like to go through investigations, to go through hearings, to go through trials, to go through seeing the perpetrators, the offenders in the room when you walk in? And then, of course, what you just raised which is as we're getting closer to it, that's a murder for hire. 
and possibly, allegedly, maybe have some machatonim involved or Wendy's family. So this is this is trauma at its best. It's like a horror movie, right? I mean, the people you think are mishpocha, it turns out maybe are the exact opposite. I'm curious, you, you talk about how it's going to be not just that the grief is there the rest of your life, but also you being hauled into courtrooms to talk to juries who have to decide on the penalty phase of a trial and the victim statements. And of course, answering media requests like ours. And obviously you want to get the word out and you do want to talk, but God willing, you have a lot of years left. Do you feel like the point will come or are you nearing a point where you want to say like, Ganook, I don't want to set foot inside a courtroom. I don't want to talk to the media. I want to go swimming and read to my grandchildren and like enough? Is that is there part of you that says that you will spend down your ability to want to do this? I, I think that would be a dream. I, I would love to, what I have to do, how I deal with it, I would love to say enough is enough, but here we are going now April 24th to more trials, uh, starting now with Charlie Addison, who is now the first family member to allegedly have participated in the crime. And that's your ex-daughter-in-law's brother. Brother, right. So even if I would like to say enough is enough, we haven't experienced enough is enough or even possibly can't think that way. But I do think is I create any opportunities I have for myself as distractions. How do you cope is really the other issue when you know it's long-term and so forth. And I think that's the way I have to look at it. And one of the ways you would cope as as a grandma is spending time with your grandchildren. And one of the plots of your book is that you are not being allowed to see Daniel's two boys as much as you would like, if at all. Can you talk a little bit about the grandparental, what you call grandparental alienation piece of it? Yes, that's critical. So the first two years after the murder, 2014 to 2016, I was able to see the children. After the arrests, everything changed. And one of the things that changed was we had limits put on us on the grandchildren visitation. The bottom line, we were cut off from seeing the kids for six years. This was another trauma. This was just as hard for me, truthfully, the loss because the children are alive. So you ask about anger or whatever. Now I'm sitting in a situation where I have living grandchildren in addition to the loss of Dan, who was murdered. And that became like, really wears you down. We tried through our lawyers to get in touch with Wendy's lawyer to see what we can do and nothing happened. So, so then our lawyer, Matt Benjamin from New York said, Ruth, you're going to have to write a bill, a bill for grandchildren. I'm sitting in Toronto. This, the Florida law is so restrictive, but you're going to have to get a bill to resolve it. And people told me I'm going to need lobbyists. I was very fortunate. I met a young woman. Her name is Karen um, Halpern Cyphers. And she said, what can I do for you? And I said, grandparent alienation. And I was just so fortunate. It was, this is muzzle luck. And we passed a law in 2022, which has been a good year for us. It's called the Markel Act. It's a bill that allows when one spouse is dead and the other spouse, an ex-spouse, is considered criminally or civilly, has findings against them, and he's charged or convicted that the grandparents have the right to go before the court and to see the children. And this provides a lot of protection to other grandparents as well. So since, so there's some little good news here, as the bill was passed in February and March of 2022, Wendy contacted us. There was a bar mitzvah coming up for Benjamin. We got invited to a bar mitzvah. We were so excited, the whole family, Shelley's included. And then I said to her in 
you know, emails a little bit back and forth. Look, the kids haven't seen us for six years. Can I take them for ice cream on, on, the, on the 13th? And then she wrote us back, well, if you want an in-person visit, come in April. And we did. Phil and I went down. This is April 20th. The uh, state attorney knew we were there and all the others. We come back on the plane to get the plane in the evening. And April 20th is the visit. April 21st, 6 a.m., I get a call from the FBI. Charlie's arrested. So all in 24 hours, this great, significant, two big events, the grandchildren and the arrest. And then three days later, she disinvited us to the bar mitzvah. But this was the process she said wasn't safe. But you did see the grandkids. I did see the grandkids. and I After also six just, years. After six years. And I just saw them again, December 10th. Is there anything you wanted to talk about that we haven't talked about yet that I can prompt you to talk about? Yes. So I talked before about grief. And one of the things that I want to invite other people who have losses in your audience, which there are many, that how do you move a little bit from grief forward? I don't mean move on. You do have to find some meaning in your life. Otherwise, you'll be stuck. And I think that, you know, we all know what post-traumatic stress is. I'm really now an advocate of post-traumatic growth and post-traumatic change. And now that I was successful with the grandparent alienation stuff, I'm moving on to the victim experience because nobody is talking about the victim in law. And my new thing, I just had the privilege of talking in Miami to all of the therapists and psychologists who worked with the Parkland families, and they just lost the death penalty. And so this is the place where my new messaging is, if anybody's working with somebody from trauma, from murder, you have to work with the criminal system as well. So the message for people who are working in therapy and trauma and healing have to understand where is that person in the criminal system? Because what happened to those families, and rightly so, after the death penalty, any intervention that they made, it went down the drain because they're re-traumatized. Thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. I just have to say, you must miss your son so much. Yes, this is a very hard, very hard, hard uh, dilemma, package, uh, story, personal trauma. It is. It is. But I thank you really for doing this. You know, like I said, there is still opportunities to not get stuck. And I think that's my my most important message is there is still hope to not so much recover, but there is still really a lot of opportunity to do very positive things in your life. Ruth, I certainly see talking to you a, a, a great story of Jewish tragedy, but also listening to your story and, and seeing your compassion and your courage uh, and your tenacity a story of the best embodiment of everything that is beautiful and eternal about being Jewish, which is standing up for justice, no matter the consequences in every day, choosing life. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Ruth Markell's book is The Unveiling, and the podcast about Dan Markell's murder is Over My Dead Body, season one.
are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. The mailbox. I have to say, just as I expected, the conversation about Easter bunnies waiting in malls for for hordes of children to come take photos with them. It's a thing. Everyone takes the photo with the Easter bunny. Our producer, Quinn Waller, sent us two photos framed in her childhood home, each in Easter frames of her at various adorable young ages posing with the Easter bunny. We got lots of pictures and we're going to share those in our newsletter. So you can subscribe to our newsletter at tabletm.ag slash unorthodox newsletter, and you can see all the photos. And I will say, I think I looked at all of them, and there is not a single freaking non-creepy totally. Easter bunny. They all look like they just escaped from, like, Bedlam Asylum and are ready to slit your throat. Like, uh, why would you ever put your child— What was the movie with Olivia Coleman where she plays Queen Anne, was it? And do you remember that one of the ways you know she's going crazy is she allows her bunnies to breed out of control in her in her boudoir, in her bedroom? It's just bunnies are taking over, basically. That's that's what it was like, including— I in thought the, you would go Donnie Darko, but okay. Including in the photo that was real shot across my bow, uh, someone from the 413, from my home area code, sent me a picture of my childhood mall, <gasps> the Holyoke Mall, with a bunny in the food court. Oh saying, look, <laughs> even you—I was saying, not in with my town. With your mom and, and all of your <laughs> other siblings, <laughs> but not you. But not me. From 1984, not me. Okay, we get this letter from our secret undercover anonymous correspondent teaching in an Orthodox day school. This person writes, a quick note about bumper stickers. The Orthodox absolutely have Jewish bumper stickers. Lots from various day schools and camps and nonprofits like Friendship Circle, which, by the way, does amazing work. Also, lots from these various websites that say, thank you, Hashem. And then this person writes, I think Liel needs this one and sends a link to a bumper sticker. It looks more like a magnetic, one of those metal magnetic things you put on your car that just says for <laughs> and, and I don't even know what that means. I but think, I think I might have just bought 500 of these. 500 of those. Also, this person writes, I absolutely hear students, again, these are Jewish students at an Orthodox school, refer to the idea of a, quote, Jewish car, a van full of car seats held together with tape and covered in bumper stickers. Love everything about this. Sincerely, a teacher in an Orthodox school. I'll, I'll make again my favorite pun. Another name for that car would be the lonely van of faith. <laughs> For the three people who got the show, uh, yes, that you was, are welcome. Uh, that was the best Soloveitchikian pun of the day. It's not a lot of Rav-related humor <laughs> on podcasts these days, but hey. And then we got this. Dear Unorthodox, greetings from the 413. Another letter from my home uh, area code. Two bumper stickers to mention. In Brooklyn, I saw Smile, Hashem Loves You. This sounds a little goyish to me. What do you think? But then yeah, there was- Smile? <laughs> yeah, yeah, remember right. it. 
What are we Mennonites? I'm freaking gonna smile. <laughs> what are we Mennonites? <laughs> the derivative that's, of that. I don't even know that makes sense. That's a good bumper sticker. <laughs> Uh, and then the letter writer writes, there was the bumper sticker that one of the Northampton, Massachusetts Rebbies did a Devar Torah on, which said, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Henry Rosenberg, North, Northampton, Massachusetts. Honestly, incredible. Um, Here's another one. Hello, I'm one of those people contemplating conversion for reasons that are not entirely clear, feeling a strong pull towards Judaism that's hard to explain. I finally started learning more about it, and the pull is getting stronger and stronger. I used to be an anti-theist, critical of the violent and intolerant religious texts, and I understand conservative and reformed Judaism acknowledged that the Torah was written by humans and is therefore flawed. But still, I haven't come across a good explanation for why there are passages about smashing babies and killing someone who picks up wood on the Sabbath. I think I'm okay acknowledging that there's bound to be some weird stuff in there if it was written by regular folks thousands of years ago, and I strangely find it even kind of funny. But so do we just accept that we're cherry-picking here? Thanks, Matthew. Liel. Yeah, this one has Rabbi Liel. in chief. Yeah. In-house Rav. What do we say to Matthew? Well, first of all, Matthew, we say we're all contemplating conversion for reasons that are not entirely <laughs> clear to us. And that includes, I think, all Jews, right, who, who every day have to make this active choice to convert back to the faith and be weird. Uh, I'm not going to comment on, on denominationalism because I don't think that's the point of your question. But I am going to tell you from the point of view of someone who absolutely believes wholeheartedly and uncomplicatedly that the Torah is entirely divine and was given to us by Hashem, that this is basically a beautiful invitation. Uh, if you look at it through a human perspective and say, well, look, I am at the center of the known moral universe because we're all solipsistic creatures and therefore the goal of this text is to make sense to me. I think you're sort of missing the point of the whole spiritual experience. I think the goal of any serious religious pursuit is to say I am now coming into a strange and rich and wonderful tradition which has layers upon layers upon layers of meaning that I can't even begin to grasp. So things that seem to me at first glance completely nonsensical and really uh, incomprehensible. Like, for example, let's let's leave the violent stuff alone. Let's look at, you know, a fundamental tenet of Judaism, keeping kosher. There is no good explanation. There is literally no good explanation <laughs> as to why we need to do it. It's just something that you're supposed to accept. But I tell you, as someone who, you know, leapt into this particular wonderful pool, that when you do, everything changes. The way you see the world, the way you see yourself, the way you feel about life and existence, because faith, uh, as some prominent philosophers put it, is, is paramount to reason. Uh, the moral philosopher sitting across from me right now may not agree, but it holds some kind of deep moral stirring that guides you towards direction that just the powers of your mind, finite, human, flawed as they are, can never do. So here's what I would advise to you. Let go of, of this attempt, understandable as it is, to sort of make sense of this text and instead engage in experiencing it, uh, engage in ritual, uh, engage in study. First of all, once you engage in study, I think you would see that even some of the passages that are most problematic to you have unbelievably deep and moving explanations by, you know, millennia of very, very wise men and women who spent their life interpreting them. And once you start engaging in practice as well, you understand that these are not sterile meditations on, you know, empty ideations. These are 
guides to 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 a better, uh, richer, happier, joyous, more constructive, fulfilling life. Uh, jump right in, just as the Israelites did when they received the Torah. They said, "Na sevenishma, we will do first, and only then we will hear." A call to action, Matthew. Keep us posted on your journey. You can write to us at nine one four five seven zero. Four eight six nine. You can also write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. I was not privileged to be in the interview with our Gentile of the Week, Zarna Garg. But boy, I wish I had been. She is a comedian whose work centers on her experience as an Indian immigrant mom. She has toured nationwide. She has over half a million followers on TikTok. She deserves every one of them because she's hilarious. And she recently sat down with Stephanie and our general manager, Tanya Singer. Have a listen. Zarna Garg, welcome to Unorthodox. Namaste, and thank you so much for having me here. We are such big fans of yours. When did you realize how funny you were? And when did everyone else realize it? I still don't know if I'm funny, and I'm not trying to be funny. I really am not. Like, I don't think I'm overbearing either. My kids seem to think that. (laughs) I realized that I had something when my daughter was like, all my friends think you're funny. And I was like, if you're an Indian woman and somebody says that, that means nothing to you. Because what do you do with funny? Is funny doesn't get you into medical school or like engineering school. So I was like, what is that? That's nothing. And she's like, you should be a stand-up comic. Because, you know, my kids are born and raised in America. Even I'm not, but they are. So they have a very American perspective. And stand-up comedy is a very American thing to us. So when they first said you should be a stand-up comic, I was like, what's that? That's not a job. I was trying to figure out how to get back into the workforce after having been a stay-at-home mom for a long time. And my kids were like, you should just do this. And I was like, that's no, no, no. You need a job that pays you money, you know? And they were like, no, there is money in comedy. You can actually do this professionally. I was like, you can? And I remember going to my first open mic, actually at Westside Comedy Club. And I believe sincerely that if it had not been run by a Jewish mom of three kids herself, I may have not gotten up on stage. But because it was run by a mom and she completely got me and got that I was like lost and didn't know what I was doing. She was so warm and she was like, just go on stage and talk about whatever you think is funny. And I was like, anything? And she's like, yeah, just whatever you think is funny. So I remember getting up on that stage and I'm just like, white people do this? (laughs) This is a job? Like, what? And then I just literally railed into my mother and <laughs> Was that the Birkin bag or did that come later? Oh, that came much later. But the mother-in-law was more basic. Like she doesn't think I can cook. You know, all the very standard issue mother-in-law things. It never occurred to me that my people have never done that. Like Indian people don't do that. That relationship, even though it has all the complexities of every in-law relationship, we are so hush-hush about it. We never talk about it. We've never made, even if you look at the biggest Indian comics in the world right now, they will never talk about their mother-in-law. And I, it, that didn't occur to me until I got into comedy myself. I was like, why do we not do this? It's because comedy is so new to our culture that people take everything personally. 
So when I did the whole mother-in-law bit, like the audience was just going nuts. And I was like, this is, what is happening, you know? Then I spent more time with the lady who ran the open mic and she gave me some ideas. And then I started working with a comedy coach who is also a Jewish lady (laughs) and who lives inside my body because she's (laughs) constantly yelling at me about, do it better, do it better. We need another punchline. She's Uh, your Jewish mother. She's my Jewish mother. She's she's my big Jewish sister and like really revolutionized my understanding of comedy because I didn't, like five years ago, I didn't even know what a joke was. I just made funny speeches my whole life. Because in our culture, there's no stand-up comedy culture. But often people would hand me the mic at events and be like, you say something, you're funny. And now I know that that was some early version of what I do now. But having a comedy coach, being in a club, going to open mics, and truly understanding what the art is and what's involved has revolutionized what I do and how I do it. And I truly, I credit Jewish women for it entirely. Honestly, I don't think I would have done it without them. You lean so much into the specificity of your experience as an Indian mother, as part of this, you know, vibrant culture. But it's so universal. Like, have you found that that was the key to your success? I mean, you have like a bajillion views on TikTok. You're touring. You're not, you have this career. You have, you're you're doing the thing. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing about connecting with people. You can try to pretend a lot, but what's really inside your heart just pops out. Hmm. And even on the digitals, even on social media, you can make a post about anything, but what's really happening in your heart will shine through because the audience and the followers are that smart. And I truly am a product of life in New York City. 25 years I've made life here. So to me, all experiences are universal. Like if you talk about your mom and you talk about your son or I talk about my mother-in-law, it just naturally, we're all going to find a common ground. That's how I view it. Like, I don't think an Indian mother-in-law is that different from a Jewish (laughs) mother-in-law because the relationship is the same. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the the son in the middle and (laughs) everybody... You know, I mean, you, you. no one gets the angst of raising teenagers in this competitive New York City bubble that we live in the way that you do. And and so you say things and they sometimes just cut through me. I'm like, oh, do I sound like that? Is that? Is that? And, and yes, I, you said overbearing, so I can say it. Um, I, I get that. And I think uh, many Jewish mothers have been told they've been overbearing once or twice. And I, I, I love that you give voice to that angst. For me, it's like, it's okay. Like, this isn't just me. This isn't just something... I'm putting on my kids. To me, it's part of the job. Because what's the alternative to not be raising your kids? Well, look what that gets you. You know, all these kids do really bad things in the world. And then you get, what does the world first ask? Where's his mother? Or where's her mother? You know, so I would rather err on the side of caution. No one's allowed to do anything in my house. (laughs) We have banned fun entirely. Because everything that can lead to fun is almost inevitably going to lead to bad things. (laughs) We've made a full return to old school, traditional Indian values. Study, become a doctor. Have fun after you're done with your residency. (laughs) So what was your first career? uh, I'm licensed to practice law in New York City. I practiced for a few years before I had my first child. But I couldn't figure out how to do both together. I'm being honest. Like, you know, I know people are able to figure it out, but I couldn't figure it out. Like, I, we're my husband and I are both immigrants alone in New York. We don't have any family anywhere nearby. 
it is so expensive to hire help in America. You know, we came from India. We came from a world where like we had 10 people waiting over us. So our culture, we have 10 kids. It's not a big deal. Here, you're like, oh my God, the weight of parenthood and also what America expects from its mothers. Early years of parenting were like, oh my God, I'm supposed to go to every one of these mommy classes? What? (laughs) I don't think anybody else in the world does this. It's been so heavily commercialized. Like we grew up in India. It's like the kids just grow up playing at home for the early years and then they go to school. That's it. There's nothing else. So I had to quit my job. I was a practicing lawyer. I quit my job. Also, I was really bad at it. (laughs) (laughs) We can't believe that. No, I was really like, I was like, I would take my own client to the judge. I was like, your honor, my client has robbed the liquor store. (laughs) And the judge was like, you're a defense attorney. Do you know what you're supposed to do? I was like, listen, you and I both know he did it. You know, there is a practical aspect to motherhood that just never leaves you. <laughs> Do you know when the kid comes home and he's covered in, in chips and crumbs and he's like, I didn't eat it. I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I couldn't figure it out. I was like, OK, you know what? I will stay home. I will support my husband. He has a job. He's working. I will stay home. And 16 years, I was a stay at home mom. For 16 years of being home with the kids, I learned something. I'm not that into them. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this is really hard. <laughs> it is the hardest thing ever. And even though everybody in the news says it's the hardest job, nobody seems to treat it like that. I feel all alone all the time. So I knew that when my third kid went to uh, kindergarten, I was like dying to get back into the workforce, like dying. I was willing to do it. I got rejected from jobs that almost no one gets rejected from. I tried to be an Uber driver with my stellar record. I thought I was a shoe in not so much, but it just, you know, and then destiny, of course, the kids, they heard me complaining every day. And uh, they were like, you just need to do comedy. Our friends think you're so funny. Well, it goes beyond that because this week you posted the beautiful college essay that your daughter wrote. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So my daughter knew that I was really struggling to figure out what to do. And she also was applying to colleges. She actually reached out to people from my past, like my friends, family, people that I haven't even met in 30 years. And she reached out to all of them and said, you know, my mom has a birthday coming up. Can you write a little note about her? and send it. I'm trying to collect like memories for her. And knowing that almost everybody's going to say something about my mom's funny. And so she collected all these notes, rewrote them, the whole thing, and got them for me on my birthday. And you know, like all moms, when I first saw the notes, I was like, oh my God, you wasted so much time on this. Now you're not going to get the SAT score you should get. (laughs) (laughs) And she was like, mom, can you just read the notes? But it was like, over 140 notes about how I made somebody laugh or how, you know, how they remember this joke I made or whatever. And that's when I truly realized, I was like, I have to dig in and figure out if there's something here. Because I was so lost, but I knew there was something inside that just was dying to come out, but I couldn't figure out what it was. And then this whole funny, funny thing kept coming up over and over again. And that's when I was like, you know what? I should probably show up at this open mic. Also, for 16 years, I yelled at my kids, you should try this, you should try this, you should try this. So then they ganged up on me. They're like, oh, is mom too scared to try this? 
And I really think in hindsight, my kids were very smart. They knew that if I do this comedy thing, I'm out of the house nights and weekends. Because <laughs> the kids know what they're doing a lot more than we think they do. So now they got what they wanted. It's kind of a, a testament to how well you raised your kids that they basically were like, Mom, we see you. We see you need something. And actually, we know what this thing is. It must be so moving to you that they they sort of, they know you so well and they wanted this for you. I mean, I definitely cried a lot when that whole event unfolded because then my son got me on TikTok, my teenager. I finally got comedy off the ground and the world shut down. And I was like, you know what? You know, honestly, you know, in America, when COVID first happened, everybody's like, it's China, it's the bat, it's the lab. We don't know where it came from. I was like, I know where it came from. It's my mother-in-law. <laughs> it definitely came from her kitchen because she's doing everything she can to destroy my career right now. <laughs> I, was, I was so convinced that it came from there. I was so upset. I said, I finally, I mean, life doesn't give you so many chances. I was already starting later in life, you know? And my son, you know, he's like, mom, you just need to get on TikTok. And, you know, early days of TikTok, we thought everything on TikTok was 14-year-old girls twerking. I was like, what do you know? And he's like, no, I'm telling you, I think the kids, they, all the kids hang out on TikTok. They're going to love your jokes. So they took, he, my son, took my set, ripped it, and, and he uploaded it without even discussing with me. And one of my early jokes I was on TikTok was I've never said I love you to my husband which went viral overnight. And now I've gone through my life thinking I'm the only one who's never said I love you. Because if you look at the media and you watch movies, you would think everybody is saying I love you all the time to everybody. That if you're in love, that's how you express your love. But we don't do that in our culture. We feed each other. And I think it's a very Jewish thing yes, too. Oh, yes. Sound, yeah. <laughs> right? Food is love. Food. Food is love. I mean, love. we never, I'm like, even when I'm really mad at my husband, I'm like, oh, girl, first you eat. <laughs> <laughs> but when that joke hit, it unraveled like a whole world of people who were like, we've never said it either. We've never said this is so stupid. Why is that the only way we show love is by saying I love you? And then that, you know, started the whole TikTok journey. I love that. Let's, so let's get to this. Are Indians the new Jews? Like, are we the same? The Indians are the old and new Jews because we're also such an old civilization. And somewhere we must be related. And, you know, to complicate matters further, within Indians, I'm a good Jew. Within the Indian Wait, community. what does that mean? So it's a, it's a type of Indian. Uh -huh. But we, okay, are you ready for this? We're known for our business acumen. Wait, this is not real. We're known for our <laughs> matriarchal culture. We're known for settling wherever we need to to find a way to make a living. And I'm one of them. So exactly. I so think what it's is your bar that? Mitzvah. I think yeah. we're ready. This is amazing. So what 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 group is that? It's the Gujarati group. It's called the Gujaratis. If you look right now in India, the prime minister is Gujarati. He's a good Jew. The richest <laughs> man in India, the richest two, three men in India are all good Jews. Like, we're so, so connected. Funny. What are the odds? It's going to sound like good Jew. It's so funny. It's it's good Jew. G-U-J-J-U. How have you so never known this? Wait, yeah. this is amazing. How, yeah. is this, how is this not It feels vaguely problematic in the best way. <laughs> in the best I mean, way. how many years are you making this show, Stephanie? And this is, the, this is breaking so, boundaries here. So because I feel like our cultures are both like 
there's the food, there's the faith, there's all these pieces woven up. Will you talk a little bit about, to use a very Christian term, like faith in your life and in your family's life? Yeah, of course. And believe it or not, even there, I have very deep Jewish roots unexpectedly. So I've had a very complicated journey coming to America. My mom passed suddenly at 14. My dad was like, I'm done parenting. I was the youngest of four. I understand his frustration. I understood it then. I understand it now. If I had a fourth kid, I might want to kill them. I had a very complex journey to America. One part of that journey was living in Sweden when I first got married with my husband. At that point, I had already been through high school, a college and law school in America. But because of the way, the speed with which my journey went, a lot of the learning that I would have done in the humanities was not as great as all the things I needed to do to graduate and move on. So when I lived in Sweden, it was the first time I realized the severity of the Holocaust. I didn't know about it. I was 23 years old. And I really had a moment. I, I ended up meeting a Holocaust survivor at a library in Sweden. And he told me a story. And I'm like, how do I not know that this has happened? I mean, I'm an educated woman by all standards. I've been through high school in India. I've been through college, been through law school. I was so embarrassed that I didn't know that when I moved to New York, we moved shortly after to New York, I went to the Museum of Jewish Heritage downtown. And I was like so eager to learn more. And also there was something cathartic about reading all the survivor stories that gave me a lot of peace because of all the complications and hardships that I had gone through, that there is a way to come out of the worst of things which your your people have gone through and documented, thank God. So a lot of them, not everybody. but uh, So I went to the Museum of Jewish Heritage and I was like, I really want to learn. I was like, but God help me if I pay for one more degree. I will die. <laughs> I cannot, because, you know, I had gone through college and law school here. So they came up with such a creative solution. They were like, you know what? Why don't you join our docent training program? And so for one year, I did their docent training program. And they said to me, you know, I said, I'm even happy to be a docent. Like, I'll do the training. And because I loved being there so much, it gave me so much peace and joy to learn all the stories, meet all the people. And they said to me, you know, we have a lot of docents in the museum. But what it would help us is if you go back into your world and share our story. Because that's what we don't have right now. And that became my role in in that community. And wow. to this day, if somebody comes to New York from anywhere, I'm like we need to go to this museum. Like, forget <laughs> the Statue of Liberty. We're going here. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that is amazing. I love that. So you know what we need to do? We need to get you back there for a show. A hundred percent. We'll do a comedy show there. Let's do it. So Zarna, as our Gentile of the week, we let our Gentiles ask a question. If they've ever wondered anything about Jewish culture or Jewish life or Jews and Clearly, you've been very, very immersed in the world of Jews. Do you have anything you sort of want to know about us? You know, I'm, I'm in the world of having young adults slash teens and my kids are dating and, you know, sometimes they're dating a Jewish boy or a Jewish girl. And so my daughter once was like dating a Jewish boy. And I was like, I'm not going to worry about this because his mom's going to hate her. And then this... <laughs> She's not going to want my daughter and this yeah, one like you don't have to worry about it. Without yeah. me being the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. About, right? Without me being the bad guy, that's like my whole mothering philosophy that's right amazing. now. Like, how can I not be the bad cop? 
but still deliver the roles. So I do wonder if, uh, if truly, I know that because of the numbers that you have lost over the years, it's very important for you guys to preserve your faith. I get that. But the reality, even what I'm seeing is there's so much crossover relationships and, and especially Hindus. Yep. Hindus and Jews crossing H- over Hindus. all the time. Can we right? say that? Yeah. yeah. No, I do a <laughs> yeah. show called Hindus at West Side Comedy Club. There it is. Because Love a there's good pun. that much yep. overlap between our cultures. Yeah. And it's all the medical students. <laughs> who, all the kids have been forced to go into medicine by their mom. <laughs> they show up with all their trauma. Uh, but I do wonder if, like, let's say my daughter was to date a Jewish boy or my son was to date a Jewish girl. Would that be something that really would make you sad? Like, be honest. I mean, the question is, does it really matter in high school? Like, is that something like, let's, let's, let's. I'm going to I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the Zarna Garg answer. <laughs> the Zarna Garg answer is, will they raise the kids Jewish? That's okay. the next question. So we have many people in my family are married to people who are who we call non-Jews. Anyone who's not a Jew. And but they're raising the kids Jewish. And so that would probably be the next question is, how would the kids be raised? That's always the anxiety. But this is crazy because it's high school, right? right? So no one's actually well, thinking they're going to get married. No, but we're thinking more. Oh, yeah. oh, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're in med school. You know, yeah. we're like, we're yeah, on the we're track. Like, it's like they're crossing over or in all kinds of places. I think, look, I think the first thing that any most Jewish moms would say is like, like, are they good to each other? And that would be the first thing. And I think, yeah, of course, we want to preserve Jewish life and Jewish culture and keep keep continuity. But like also you love your child and you want them to be in a, in a good, healthy relationship. And so if there's respect and and some way of honoring Jewish life. Ideally, raising Jewish kids would be awesome. But as we agree, like there's a huge there's a huge uh, complementary kind of cultural values. And I think that the kids would be raised with strong family and loving home. And of course, with great food. <laughs> yeah, that matters most of all. I also think it's very likely that one of your kids is marrying a Jew, right? Don't you just feel it? I think it's, yeah. And it's going to lead to such good comedy. Well, uh, yes. And I actually <laughs> think based on just what you guys just said right now, if the whole religion thing, like, you know, how, how are you going to raise the kids? Like, you could not have an easier religion to pair with than the Hindus. Because, like, we're giving kids away. <laughs> we're, we have so many numbers. We're so embarrassed. We're like, take them. You know what I mean? Raise them all Jew. Raise the neighbor's kids Jewish, too. Like, we have too many. We're embarrassed. We've become the laughing stock of the world. You know what I mean? So we're all so complimentary in that way. Like, if my daughter or son came home and told me she's raising her kids Jewish, I would be like, great. Can I come with you, too? Because <laughs> actually, the rabbi is very deep, very fun. It's a whole another story. But I'm one of the biggest donors to a, a, a Jewish temple Purely because of the madness of trying to get into a, a nursery school. No. <laughs> Wait, this is amazing. So you joined a, a temple. This is. I mean, we have the same thing. We have temples. We yeah. don't do Christmas. Like no. it's. It's. No, it's we perfect. do Christmas oh, you, yeah. for the gifts. Okay. Okay. It's <laughs> yeah. not a religious yeah. thing. Yeah. It's just everybody. You're like we're Americans. We yeah. do gifts. We, we do like listen. You know, there's like capitalism. Yeah. We yeah. Support the country. Yeah, of course. And that's how we. You know, so we do gifts. Okay. But, but there's nothing religious about. It. We eat a lot. <laughs> Christmas. I don't know. Is it even a food holiday? Who cares? And you could do like vegetarian, really. Like it works with with kosher. Oh, yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. yeah. I think this is great. We have a shidduch. Yeah. Yeah. Done. Sarnagarg, it's been such a treat talking to you. You are hilarious. You are brilliant. You are insightful. We're so glad you came to talk with us. Where can people see you? Where do we follow you? Where do we see you in person? You can follow me on all major social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn, at Zarna Garg. 
Z-A-R-N-A-G-A-R-G. And you can see my show schedule on zarnagarg.com. I'm traveling the whole country with my show, One in a Billion, that's going to be streaming worldwide in two months on a major streaming service. Amazing. So uh, you're going to see that. And and of course, you know, you can see my everyday life on social media. I put it out there uh, pretty regularly. And, you know, feel free to jump in. I encourage everybody to comment and get involved because it is social media. It's supposed to be social. Amazing. Sarna, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So amazing. Mazel tovs. Uh, Leo, do you have a mazel tov this week? To the entire cast and crew of the Heschel Middle School's production of The Little Mermaid. You rocked it and were so amazing. And if you did this every day, I will probably come every day. My mazel tov this week is to my cousin, Brittany, and her husband, Blake. Brittany Kirshner Rosen and her husband, Blake Rosen, who had one of the greatest weddings ever, which I was privileged to experience uh, about a year and a half ago, I think. Last week, they welcomed baby Sloan Jenna Rosen to the family. And I have to say, Sloan Jenna Rosen immediately becomes my very favorite first cousin twice removed. I have a similar welcome to the world to Essie Rose Firestone Teeter, the daughter of Naomi and Adam, dear friends of ours, former colleagues, part, I mean, just amazing people. And um, we're so excited, Essie, that you're here. I know it's been a long journey and we just can't wait to meet you. Hallelujah. And she's freaking adorable. Unorthodox, a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, and Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Frost, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Daron Rusquet, and the administrative support team of Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please get our brand new swag, including the already legendary corduroy unorthodox baseball cap at tabletstudios.com. The episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Please send a snail mail at P.O. Box 20079-1001. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Neil Schuster at Temple B'nai Jeshurun in Des Moines, Iowa, and also by the other Mark Oppenheimer joining us in studio straight out of Bloemfontein, Toria Town. Where are you from? Johannesburg. Everyone's from Johannesburg, right? Johannesburg, yeah. Every, on principle, everyone's from Johannesburg. We come to you from Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. <laughs> <laughs>